Today on the Matt Walsh Show, the White House and the media commemorated the Trans Day of Remembrance yesterday. They claim that uh, 26 people have been killed in anti-trans violence. I looked into the numbers, and you'll be shocked to learn that the claim is total nonsense. Also, the Department of Defense continues to pour more and more money into DEI programs. MSNBC worries that Trump will take office and immediately begin executing his political enemies. And the movement grows to replace Thanksgiving with a day of mourning for the Native American victims of alleged genocide. I'll explain why I still and will always celebrate Thanksgiving in spite of the propaganda. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Just a quick reminder that the best deal of the year is here with 50% off new Daily Wire Plus annual memberships. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe right now to join. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, the left has lost their mind, making abortion their official sacrament. But grassroots pro-life efforts, which are more important than ever, are booming. Despite the narrative, pro-lifers have not gone away. In fact, they've increased in number. One of the efforts I support is 40 Days for Life because they're changing hearts and minds in the most blue pro-abortion states. 40 Days for Life has had record numbers of locations open since Roe was overturned, and they've grown in volunteers as well. This success has come with new unwanted attention from the DOJ. 40 Days for Life has made national headlines because they're suing the DOJ on behalf of their volunteer, Mark Houck, who had his house raided by the FBI. So they're going on offense against our compromised FBI and DOJ. With about a million volunteers in 1,600 cities, 40 Days for Life holds peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. You can help them fight their ongoing legal battles and pursue uh, free speech for their volunteers, including Mark Halk, by giving a tax-deductible gift of any amount at 40daysforlife.com. That's 40daysforlife.com. One of the uh, easiest ways to find out what is important to a group of people, whether it's a country, a culture, a congregation, or whatever— is to look at who they honor in death. And if you do that, you can find out pretty quickly what traits they think are important, what characteristics they want to emulate. The ancient Greeks built shrines to heroes and kings who won great battles. Nearly every culture until recently has honored people for similar reasons. If you go back through history, at least if you ignore satanic cults and fundamentalist terror groups, you'd be hard-pressed to find any group of people that goes out of its way to honor the most disordered and destructive members of society. The very idea of honoring immoral behavior, immoral people, is, is counterintuitive to most people because it flies in the face of human nature and of common sense. Societies that want to survive, which is the most fundamental instinct of all, you would think, don't want to reward thugs and criminals and other degenerates. If you do that, you just get more thugs, criminals, and other degenerates. That's why what happened at the White House yesterday was both revealing and disturbing, though not at all surprising, uh, if you care about the future of this country, at least it's disturbing. Joe Biden's press secretary, Karen Jean Pear, announced solemnly that the White House was celebrating something called the Trans Day of Remembrance. And here's what she said. Today, on Transgender Day of Remembrance, we grieve the 26 transgender Americans who were killed this year, year after year. We see that these victims are disproportionately black women and women of color. No one should face violence, live in fear, or be discriminated against simply for being themselves. And of course, the Trans Day of Remembrance is very important because it had been, uh, you know, about three and a half days since the last day set aside to celebrate trans people. And we know we, we need to have at least two a week. 
or it's a genocide. So she says that on the Trans Day of Remembrance, we grieve for the 26 transgender Americans who were killed this year. Now, notably absent from Karen Jean Pear's statement was any description of what these 26 victims were doing when they died. But all the same, she wants you to know that the federal government is honoring the memory of each and every one of them. They are secular saints. They are martyrs. They are heroes in the eyes of the Biden administration and of the left. They were martyred just, just for being trans, and in many cases, just for being black and trans. Now, just in case there was any doubt about the way that this is all being framed, uh, Joe Biden made it explicit, or rather Joe Biden's handlers, who write all of his social media posts, of course, made that explicit. Biden's ex-account put out this statement, quote, uh, quote, today on Transgender Day of Remembrance, we grieve the transgender Americans whose lives were taken this year. There's no place for hate or discrimination in America. No one should lose their life simply for being themselves. Now, various media outlets have repeated that framing. They've all come out and suggested that 26 people died just for being trans or non-binary or one of the other infinite gender identities. The New York Daily News, for example, published this headline yesterday, quote, at least 33 trans people were killed in the U.S. in the past 12 months amid a record year for anti-LGBTQ legislation. So they have a slightly different figure from the White House. They say uh, 33 trans people died. Well, the White House said 26 trans people died. But in any event, the New York Daily News wants you to know that it's been a record year for anti-LGBTQ legislation, meaning that the legislation that outlaws, you know, chemical and physical castration of children, um, and, uh, and that the implication here is that that kind of legislation something, somehow had something to do with these trans people dying. Somehow legislators are committing murder just by passing laws that are overwhelmingly popular and, of course, also moral and necessary. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but the USA Today uh, is on board. They joined in in all this, and they published an article declaring that uh, this White House-sanctioned Day of Remembrance is a way to honor the, quote, lives that have been lost to anti-transgender violence. Now, again, what none of these statements from the Biden administration or these corporate media outlets ever get around to clarifying is this. Why exactly are we honoring these 26 dead trans people who were killed? Beyond the vague platitudes about anti-trans legislation and anti-trans violence, what are the specifics? Who are these people exactly? Why did they die? What exactly is happening? Well, the White House clearly doesn't want to say, but they know the answer because the White House based its statement on about 26 dead trans people on a list that was assembled recently by the so-called Human Rights Campaign, or HRC. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with HRC, if you listen to the show, you've heard about them before. But, you know, think of it like a Media Matters for trans activists, even though Media Matters already is the Media Matters for trans activists. Um, and either way, HRC, they are dishonest in every possible respect. Like any other trans activist, they lie about everything all the time. Their sole purpose following the Supreme Court's ruling on gay marriage is to further false narratives that demonize anyone in this country who believes in biology because people who believe in biology tend to vote the wrong way as far as they're concerned. So on its website this week, HRC explained that this year, 26, quote, trans and gender nonconforming people were killed. HRC states that these are people who, quote, did not deserve to have their lives taken from them. So the clear implication of all this is that these people died because they were trans somehow. That's what, that is what is being directly claimed. That's what USA Today said. This is anti-transgender violence. This is all the result of hate, Biden claims. 
And here's the thing about all that. It's not remotely true. Not even close. So I went through this list of 26 trans people that were killed. um, And I went through it one by one. And here's what I can tell you. Then you're not supposed to do that. They're just supposed to tell you 26 people died. And then you say, oh, 26 26, uh, anti-trans hate crimes were committed. That's bad. That's all you're supposed to think. What you're not supposed to do is actually go and look at these cases. And uh, I did that thing you're not supposed to do. And here's what I can tell you, that there is not a single instance among these 26 so-called trans and gender non-conforming people where it has been proven that the killers were motivated by transphobia, or for that matter, sexism or ableism or any other ism or phobia. Instead, there are a lot of cases like Banco Browns. Now, according to HRC's description, Banco, quote, was killed by an armed security guard in San Francisco after an altercation with an armed security guard at a, at a uh, local Walgreens store. That's all pretty vague. Now, what exactly was Banco doing with this armed security guard? What happened exactly? Well, as it happens, uh, we don't have to speculate about that because it was all caught on surveillance tape. And we know from the video that Banco Brown, who's a female, I believe, who identifies as male, tried to rob the Walgreens, tried to, tried to steal. A security guard tried to stop her. And then Banco started fighting with the guard. And then when she turned her back towards the guard while threatening to stab him, the guard opened fire. Now, it's not exactly a story about a virtuous transgender person who was murdered simply for being themselves, as Joe Biden and the HRC have said. Unless we're supposed to believe that, I don't know, stealing from Walgreens was some sort of expression of Banco Brown's inner truth. Now, to be fair, at this point, you might be tempted to overlook Banco Brown's inclusion on the White House list of 26 trans heroes and martyrs. Uh, You might want to say that the White House and the HRC just made a mistake by including uh, that one person, that one thug who was trying to steal, and uh, all the rest, you know, that's that's just one out of 26. But if you're thinking along those lines, you should know that it only gets worse from there. Another so-called trans person on the White House list goes by the name Tortuguida, whose real name is Manuel Tehran. Um, now, who is the Manuel Tehran, a.k.a. Tortuguida, exactly? Well, according to uh, HRC, he was a, quote, 26-year-old indigenous, queer, and non-binary environmental activist and community organizer. HRC says that he was, quote, shot and killed by Georgia state troopers in Atlanta, Georgia on January 18th, 2023, during an ongoing protest alongside other self-described forest defenders uh, protesting against a proposed $90 million, 85-acre police training facility deemed Cop City by activists. Now, what that description leaves out is that according to the local DA, Tehran was holed up in a tent trespassing at the site of the planned police facility. And then uh, authorities showed up, tried to get them to leave, ended up firing less lethal pepper ball rounds at him. And that's when Tehran fired four times from his nine millimeter pistol, striking a Georgia state trooper. Now there is body cam footage of this incident and you can hear the shots. You can kind of hear what's going on. Uh, Watch. Everybody activate their cameras. Like an infantry squad, APD officers slowly move through these woods. They zero in on this tent right here. This is the Atlanta Police Department. Please come out with your hands up. And begin to rip it apart. No one's in it, but one officer is concerned about what he found inside. Gasoline, anything that can be used to hurt. As they continue their patrol, four distinct shots are heard. Listen. And then dozens. (laughs) 
target practice? Officers appear to be confused until they figure out it's not target practice and gunfire is close by. They take cover behind trees. They can't see what has happened and wait to get a clearer picture on police radio and then they hear this. What agency is that? Is there an active shooter in the woods? No, active shooter. Okay, so you heard the four shots that are, were apparently fired by Tehran and, uh, it, it, uh, and then returned fire. So it seems that uh, this person did not die because he was queer and non-binary, quote-unquote. Instead, he apparently died as a result, first of illegally protesting at the planned location of a police training facility. He was, he was uh, trespassing, and um, that's why they came to tear down. If you trespass on property that doesn't belong to you, you're going to get your tent tore down. That happens. I mean, unless you're in San Francisco or something, then that won't happen. Um, and, uh, and then, most crucially, he made the fateful decision to open fire on police officers, nearly killing a Georgia state trooper. And when you fire a gun at police officers, you will die. That's what's going to happen. The left claims that he never fired any shots, but according to police, forensics prove that the gun was his and he did fire it at them. Even still, in the wake of the shooting, left-wing activists have claimed that he was actually murdered in cold blood. They say that the police just executed this queer, non-binary environmental activist for no reason. There's no evidence to support that theory, but it really doesn't matter in this discussion anyway, because no matter what happened, it's extremely obvious that Tehran didn't die because the cops were transphobic. Like, even if the shooting was unjustified, which it doesn't at all appear to be, it still does not belong on a list of trans people who died for being themselves. So why was this person included on a list of 26 trans people that Joe Biden says died just because of who they were? It's a good question. Why are they putting Banco Brown and Manuel Tehran on this list if it's supposed to be a, a solemn remembrance of people who died because of their quote-unquote gender identity? Starting to look like, you know, it may not be an accident. Starting to look like the White House and the HRC want to tell us that no matter what trans people do, and no matter how they try to kill other people, no matter what, uh, how they conduct themselves, no matter what crimes they commit, if they are killed in the process, it is automatically an anti-trans uh, martyrdom. And as you go down the list provided by the HRC and endorsed by the White House, that seems more and more likely to be the case. Consider the case of Devani Jaray uh, Johnson, who's another one of the uh, 26 trans souls that we tragically lost this year. According to the HRC, Johnson, quote, was shot and killed on August 7th, 2023, during an altercation with a security guard just one day after her birthday. But again, as with Banco Brown, Manuel Tehran, they don't tell you that what Johnson was actually doing in that altercation with the security guard just before, quote, her birthday. If you're digging for that information, you'll find that Johnson was attacking a security guard in a Ralph's supermarket with a fire extinguisher and a screwdriver. And then he was shot in self-defense. According to the LAPD, quote, the security guard informed officers that he shot the individual as the result of an armed confrontation. The wounded individual had armed themselves with a screwdriver and attempted to assault him. The wounded individual was transported by Los Angeles Fire Department personnel to a local hospital where they were pronounced dead. Now, at this point, you have to take a step back and ask, did anyone on this list of 26 trans people die because of transphobia? Are, are any of these murders hate crimes? The, the media and the Biden administration are presenting them all as hate crimes. It's clear that not all of them are, or even most of them. Are any of them? As far as I can tell, the answer to that question is no. 
There's not one proven case the entire year of a trans person dying in a hate crime. At least three of these people were committing acts of violence when they died. Several others were, were you know, out walking in the middle of the night in conspicuous locations like highways and motel rooms, which, uh, of course, suggests prostitution might be involved in some of those cases. In other cases, it looks like uh, these trans victims died randomly, and certainly not because of transphobia or racism or anything like that. One of the quote-unquote trans victims on the list, for example, a 28-year-old black gender non-conforming person named Thomas Tom Tom Robertson was killed in a shooting that targeted somebody else. So it was just random. Tragedy. There's no transphobia, though. Several other victims on the list, including Camden Ryder, Luis Angel Diaz Castro, and Sherilyn Marjorie, were killed by partners or ex-partners. So this is a domestic thing. There's no sign that any of this was related to a hatred of trans people since the killers were voluntarily dating these trans people. Another victim on the list, Asia Davis, was shot at night inside a hotel room in Michigan. We can speculate about what was going on in that hotel room, but the truth is that no one, including the Biden administration, is seriously suggesting, or could seriously suggest, that it was a right-wing bigot who randomly decided one day to hunt down and kill Asia Davis. 21-year-old Unique Banks, meanwhile, uh, died in a mass shooting, so the odds that Unique Banks was targeted for being trans seem pretty low, but Unique Banks is being mourned by the White House as yet another victim of transphobia. A person who goes by the name Coco Didal is also on the White House list, and uh, what about this person? Is, is, is his killer a MAGA Republican transphobe? Well, let's see. Only on 11 Alive News, a mother is defending her teenage son. He's charged in the murder of a woman in Atlanta. His mom says her son did not pull the trigger. Coco Dadal was found shot along Martin Luther King Jr. Drive near the Hamilton E. Holmes Marta Station two weeks ago. 17-year-old Jamarcus Jernigan is charged with murder. Now Jernigan's mother is refuting many points in the investigation, saying they'd never heard of Coco until her son was accused of killing her. I don't even know what this person's real name was because all the reporting is calling this person Coco Dadal, which we can be pretty sure was not his real name. So 17-year-old Jamarcus uh, probably didn't kill 35-year-old Coco Dadal because he's a right-winger. This was some kind of domestic issue, apparently. And again, you can speculate. You can speculate about what a 35-year-old trans-identified male called Coco Dadal was doing with a 17-year-old. They probably weren't getting together to play chess. We don't know, but it's got nothing to do with the anti-trans hate crimes. That much we do know. Now, I could go on, but you get the point. But, but here's the kicker. Even if all 26 of these transgender people were killed by right-wing bigots solely because they're transgender, it would still, in that case, be safer to be transgender than any other demographic group in this country. There are roughly 1.6 million self-identifying trans people in this country right now. That means that if only 26 of them die every year, even if we were to accept that they're all hate crimes, which none of them are apparently, then the typical member of the trans community has a drastically lower risk of dying or being killed in any given year than the average U.S. citizen. By some estimates, they're roughly four times less likely to be killed. So this is a fraud. It is a hate crime myth that's been invented out of whole cloth. And none of it's new, by the way. Recently, trans activists and left-wing politicians have decided to run this scam every year. Back in 2019, the Federalist crunched the numbers on so-called trans violence as, um, or anti-trans violence as reported by the HRC from 2015 to 2019. 
And they found that within this data set, quote, the two largest known categories of murders occur as a result of domestic violence and prostitution. The Federalists concluded, quote, but we do know from all available resources that the violence these individuals experience occurs to a, to a very broad range of people with diverse backgrounds and identities. It is clearly more an issue of high-risk environments than identity-based discrimination. But identity-based discrimination, even when it doesn't exist, of course, is all the White House wants to talk about. They have engineered a narrative with no basis in reality for the sole purpose of defaming the political opponents of the left and of the Biden administration. They're so desperate to concoct a trans genocide that they've lied and misrepresented every case they can. And yet, even after all that, they're only able to come up with 26 instances of violence against so-called trans people. And not a single confirmed case, not one, where the violence was committed because the person was trans. In the end, they have only accidentally proven that it is, in fact, much safer to be trans in this country than to not be trans. So it's all farcical. It reveals that we're governed by people who do not care about anyone, even the, quote, gender nonconforming community. They only care about themselves and gaining more power. As the past few days have shown, to that end, they're willing to lie about anything. They're even willing to honor thugs who try to beat up cops or, uh, or beat up security guards at supermarkets with fire extinguishers. These are the heroes of the Biden administration. These are the degenerates whose legacy they want us to honor. They don't care about the Christians murdered by that transgender terrorist. They won't memorialize those dead men, women, and children. They won't praise the police officers who stopped more bloodshed by rushing into that school. Instead, they'll eulogize Banco Brown and Manuel Tehran. You know, most societies throughout all of history would call this kind of celebration a form of cultural suicide, a guarantee that the worst among us will be rewarded and propagated until society itself can't exist anymore. But the Biden administration, corporate media, trans activists, they have a different name for all this. They call it the Transgender Day of Remembrance. Now let's get to our five headlines. The holidays are rapidly approaching, but we can find peace and calm in the craziness of the season with Hallow, the number one Christian prayer app in the world. Immerse yourself in Christmas and Advent prayers, meditations, and peaceful Christmas music. Hallow also offers an extensive library of Bible reading plans accompanied by insightful reflections and audio-guided meditations. Whether you're a seasoned Bible reader or just starting your journey, Hallow provides a platform for you to engage with Scripture like never before. A great place to start is with Father Mike Schmitz's Bible in a Year, which he offers brief daily readings and reflections available on the Hallow app. The Hallow app also helps you uh, connect with a community of like-minded individuals sharing experiences, insights, and encouragement along the path to spiritual growth. This Christmas, join Hallow's Christmas Prayer Challenge. Advent with C.S. Lewis for the 25 days leading up to Christmas. You can focus on the real reason for the season with prayer, meditation, and Christmas music on Hallow. Download the app for free at hallow.com slash Matt Walsh for three months free. That's hallow.com slash Matt Walsh. Um, I know that many of you are watching the show today and uh, thinking to yourself, wow, Matt looks even more handsome than usual. Or maybe you're thinking, while Matt is still a, a hideous beast, but uh, slightly less so than usual. Whichever way you go, the reason for um, my impressive appearance today is that I'm wearing for the first time the Matt Walsh flannel, which is available now at the Daily Wire store, dailywire.com shop. Black Friday sale. 
buy one for yourself. You can buy one for your friends and family, for your uh, liberal neighbor, even better. So we have three varieties at the moment. My, my plan is to eventually have enough flannel options that you can stock your whole wardrobe with them and so that you can be much like me, basically like a cartoon character that wears the exact same thing every day. Not the exact same thing, slightly different. The exact same thing, but slightly different every day. That's my ultimate goal. So you can dailywire.com slash shop and uh, pick up your flannel today. Daily Wire has this report. The Department of Defense uh, could drop nearly $270 million in taxpayer funds to further the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility DEI agenda from fiscal years uh, 2022 to 2024. The, the DOD has scaled up its spending on DEIA in the past. DEIA. What's the A? Oh, accessibility. So we've added an A. I didn't even know we did that. So we added, this is a big moment. We've added, uh, uh, so we're going to do, so with DEI, we're going to do the same thing we're doing with LGBT. So you take any of these initialisms, they just can't, the, the left, they can't help, but they just keep adding to them. So we've got DEI, now it's DEIA. Um, and spending jumped from $68 million in fiscal year 2022 to $86.5 million in fiscal year 2023. Then the figure surged another 28.2 million to 114 million in the department's initial request for fiscal year 2024. The DOD's initial request for DEIA funding is included in the final legislation. The department will, if it is rather, the department will have spent $269.2 million on diversity initiatives across fiscal years 2022, 23, and 24, which is an average of almost $90 million per year. So this is what uh, the Pentagon's up to. This is what the Department of Defense is, is up to. And, you know, it's good news as always. Um, even as the administration seems dead set on getting us involved in every possible foreign conflict, even as we face the possibility of World War, World War III, um, even as our country is run by these uh, uh, globalists who want to have us traipsing all over the world and policing the entire world, we are at the same time actively weakening our military actively making it less powerful and weaker and more feminine and focusing on everything that we can besides making it a more effective fighting and killing force, which is what the military is supposed to be. And the people in the military, you know, they, they signed up to serve their country and instead they get DEI lectures. And what makes it I mean, there are a lot of very obvious reasons why this is troubling to see in the military. But one of the worst things about it is that you've got, I mean, literally a captive audience. It, it, it's, I mean, it's bad enough when you have this in the corporate world, but at least you could leave your job. It'd be difficult finding another job that doesn't have all this stuff, but you can leave your job. In the military, it's like not nearly that easy. And so you are helplessly subjected to it. And the indignities don't stop there, by the way. Uh, there's another, there's a, a video that went viral yesterday that um, has nothing to do with DEI, but it does have everything to do with the way that our government treats the military and the people that signed up to serve the country. So this is a guy uh, in the army, it's a soldier leaving the service and revealing how when he went to turn his gear in, they charged him $4,000 that he had to pay them he had to pay the government for gear that was lost. But it was lost, not because he lost it himself. He knows where it is. 
It's in Afghanistan because he was told by his superiors to leave it behind. And then they charged him for it anyway. It's just like, it's flat out extortion. This is the, the, the thank you that he gets for serving his country. Let's watch a little bit of that video. I want to share something with you guys today. I want to holler. I want to scream. I want to yell. But it won't do any good. Um, today is gear turn-in day for me. I turn in all the gear that I've collected over the last four years of being active duty with the Army, with the 82nd Airborne Division. Two years ago, my unit deployed to Afghanistan for the Afghanistan withdrawal. We spent a few weeks over there. It was hectic. It was chaotic. It was disgusting. And it made me very disappointed in our government. Today, I'm reminded of how disappointed I am in our government. Go to turn in my gear. They want to charge me $500 to $1,000 for gear that I was ordered to leave in Afghanistan two years ago. Because as the last two birds were sitting on the tarmac, ready to leave, there wasn't any room for extra gear or extra weight. Therefore, we were told to leave it. Some lower enlisted dudes, including myself, were like, no, this stuff is expensive. I'm not leaving this. I'm going to get charged for this when it comes time to leave. Don't worry. We're going to catch you on the back end. You know, we'll flip it. No. It's time to get out of the army and they just want to, they want to charge you. For, for that. Meanwhile, so and then it, the video ends with him showing his final bill. I mean, it's it, for those who served in the in the. Like, there's a lot of uh, a lot of comments to this. People that were in the military, not at all surprised by this, and saying, "Yeah, this is what they do to you." Um, those of us who did not serve, it's like actually surprising. What do you mean you have to pay? They give you a bill when you leave that you have to pay. What the hell? Um. Which, is, which should be crazy regardless, but in this case, when they tell you to leave it behind, then they charge you for, for leaving it behind. I mean, like I said, it's extortion. This is just extortion. And, um, and he, the video ends with him showing the bill that he got, and it, it tallied up to about $4,000. You know, I have to admit this. I, I mean, I hate to admit it, but a few days ago, um, I was actually talking to my, to my son, who's, who's only 10, and, you know, we have a lot of conversations about what he wants to do when he grows up. And he has a lot of different ideas, you know, as kids, that's you know, typical of, of kids, of course. And his latest thing that he told me very few days ago is that he wants to be, uh, he wants to be in the army. He wants to be a soldier. And, uh, you know, he, he's 10, so he'll probably change his mind in two seconds anyway. But I actually dissuaded him, uh, you know, from, from, from that. Um, I did not say, oh, that's, yeah, you should definitely do that. That's great. Now, I mean, 10 years ago, if you had told me that I would actively try to dissuade my own sons from joining the military, uh, I would not have believed you. Uh, or if I did believe you, I would have assumed that that meant I'd gone insane and turned into some full-on, full-blown lib. But, well, I might be insane, but I'm not, a, I'm not a lib. And yet I dissuaded him. Gently, of course. It's not like I said, no son of mine, no son of mine will do that. I didn't say that. We just kind of talked about it very briefly, and it wasn't a big deal, and I sort of redirected him, and, uh, and we moved on. And, you know, if someone had heard that conversation, it wouldn't have sounded like a big, it wouldn't have sounded like a, some sort of really serious talk we were having. But to me, it was kind of a big deal because it was uh, sort of the, the final moment where I really officially realized that I don't want my own sons joining the military. 
I don't want them to serve their country. I don't. Um, how could I at this point? Do I want my sons to... Now, if they become adults and they decide they want to do that, and that's what they do, of course, I'll support them. And I'll be uh, proud of them for, um, for pursuing that, that goal. But do I want my sons to sign their lives away where they'll be subjected to this like DEI woke indoctrination and be powerless against it? Do, 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 I, do I want that for them? Would I recommend it? No. Like, do I want them to be in a position where they're going to where they're going to have this crazy left wing indoctrination and they can't do anything about it? Do I want them to potentially be sent off to die on foreign soil in defense of some foreign nation that has nothing to do with us, a country they've never been to and don't care about, at the behest of a of, of a bunch of corrupt, soulless bureaucrats? I don't want that. I respect people who join, but I, I feel the same way about it as I do about the police. Um, I, if my any of my kids said they wanted to become police officers, I would say, <laughs> again, if you're an adult, I can't stop you. But don't do that. Um, not because I hate the cops, but because I don't want my own kid to sign up for a situation where he will be tasked with enforcing the law, but then also told that if he tries to enforce it, he might go to prison. I would be terrified of that. My kids sign up to be a cop at this point. And that's another one that, you know, years ago, if you had told me that as a father, I would not want my own son to be, uh, uh, if they told me they wanted to be in law enforcement, I would try to persuade them not to. I, I, would, I wouldn't have believed you if you if had told me that 10 years ago. But, but I, I would know that they'd be in a situation where, you know, if, if, if they have to enforce the law, they could go to prison for it. So it's a lose-lose situation. I don't want my kids signing up for a lose-lose situation. And uh, the military is the same kind of thing now. A lose-lose situation in a lot of ways. It shouldn't be, but it is. And um, I can tell you one thing. I'm certainly not the only parent who, and I, I don't mean left-wing. I'm talking about, I've talked to many conservatives who have kids who feel exactly this way about it. And that's a problem because like, we also need cops and we need the military. But as parents, we look at the state of these institutions, not because of the rank and file they sign up for, but because of the people leading it. And we look at that and we say, I don't want my kid anywhere near that. Talk about a loser situation. It creates a loser situation for the country. And there's just no, there's no happy uh, ending to it. I don't know what to say. MSNBC has a dire prediction about what will happen during Trump's second term. And here's what they say. Remember now when people go, oh, you can't compare him he to past kidding. Nazi leaders. You can't compare him to this past Nazi leader or that past fascist leader because he hasn't done that. Well, what hasn't he done? He hasn't done the things that the American judicial system did not allow him to do last time, but may very well allow him to do this time or a judicial system that will be ignored by Donald Trump and ran over by Donald Trump to create the greatest constitutional crisis of our lifetimes. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it when he gets a chance to do it. And if he is well. voted into office, 
then a lot of these people that are talking about literal or figurative or whatever the hell they're saying, you're going to look like idiots uh, because he will do, he will get away with, he will imprison, he will execute whoever he's allowed to imprison, execute, uh, 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 drive from the country. Just look at his past. It's not really hard to read. The only, again, the only thing that stood between him and the destruction of American democracy was the federal judiciary. No doubt about it. So it's funny that, um, that they're staying with this line of attack against Trump when it's not even close to the truth. I mean, that's not the fact that they're, oh, can you believe they're attacking Trump by saying things that aren't true? Uh, this is unheard of. And that part is not, uh, is not even, certainly not even funny at this point. It's just absolutely par for the course. But it's just the, the proper, you know, the, the correct criticism of Trump is the opposite of what they're saying. It's actually the opposite. Um, Trump is the opposite of a, of a dictator, you know. Not that I want him to be a murderous tyrant. That's, uh, that's not what I would want to see happen, obviously. But my point is that his flaw as a leader, and what we saw for the four years that he was in office, the flaw is all the way on the other end of that spectrum. The actual reality-based criticism of Trump is that he did not wield his power nearly enough. And, and there's a lot of room in between like what Trump did and being a dictator. It, 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 he's not even close. Um, Trump was not somebody who ruthlessly used his power to advance his agenda. I wish he was. I don't want him to be a murderous tyrant. Nobody wants that. That's why we call them murderous tyrants. But do I want him to like use it to wield the power that he has, advance his agenda, and yes, be a little ruthless in doing so, be calculated and ruthless in wielding power to advance the agenda that you're running on and that the people who voted for you want to see advanced. Yes, that's what I want to see. And if he actually did that, then yeah, then of course the left would even more. Well, he's a dictator. But they're saying that anyways. This, this is all the more reason. Like you might as well... No matter what you do, if you're Donald Trump, you are Hitler. It, it doesn't matter what you do. Okay, you go and adopt a puppy. From, you rescue a, 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 a kitten from a tree, and you're, you're Hitler for doing it. So no matter what you do, you're Hitler. And so if the concern from Trump, and he is far too concerned about what the media says about him than he should be. Um, if the concern from Trump is, oh, yeah, if I use the power, if I do this, if I do that, uh, you know, it's like what he, if he, when he's asked why he didn't fire Fauci, he says, "Wow, they would, they would, the media would have, uh, they would have killed me over that." Well, they're killing you every day anyway. It's like you, you, they already have the level of outrage that they would have had if you fired Fauci, even though you didn't. So, like, if you're concerned about their outrage, which you shouldn't be, you might as well do it because you you're already at maximum outrage all the time directed at you from the media. So there's really nothing you can do that would increase the outrage. It's, it's at maximum level always. 
So they are, the, the media with this criticism, um, they are obviously completely, it's like they're all the way on the other side of reality with this thing. Um, which again, is what we expect. But you know, the thing is, a, if they're going to exaggerate, and this is like way beyond exaggerating, but if they're going to exaggerate in an effort to criticize Trump, probably a more effective exaggeration would be that one that is on the end of the spectrum where he actually occupied. If they were to say, oh, he didn't do anything the entire time. All he did was watch Fox News. He sat, he laid in bed in his pajamas and didn't do anything. He wore pajamas for the entire time. He spent 14 hours a day laying in bed watching Fox News. That would be a gross exaggeration of what Trump actually did, but at least you're like, on the end of the spectrum that is reality, where it's he did not advance the agenda enough, did not use his power nearly enough. And if a Republican's in the White House, whoever that Republican is, uh, they need to be someone who is willing to, who understands the power that they have and, and understands how to use it and is willing to do it. No matter how it looks, all right, um, well, this is kind of a longer one. We don't really have time for it, but we'll touch on it anyway. Uh, New York Times has this headline. The headline is, this is not the way to help depressed teenagers. And it's a whole, it's a, it is a, uh, an op-ed that it's worth reading the entire thing. Read a little bit of it. it. says, Dr. Saxby is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Southern California. Um, ever since the pandemic, when rates of teenage suicide, anxiety, and depression spiked, policymakers around the world have pushed to make uh, mental health resources more broadly available to young people through programming in schools and on social media platforms. Um, the strategy is well-attentioned. Traditional therapy can be expensive and time-consuming. Access can be limited. By contrast, large-scale light-touch interventions, TikTok offerings from Harvard School of Public Health, grief coping workshops in junior high, aim to reach young people where they are and at relatively low cost. But there's now reason to think that this approach is risky. Recent studies have found that several of these programs not only failed to help young people, they also made their mental health problems worse. Understanding why these efforts backfired can shed light on how society can and can't help teenagers who are suffering from depression and anxiety. Consider a social-emotional skills training school program called Wise Teens, led by clinical psychologists in training. It consists of eight weekly, hour-long classroom sessions in which students learn to manage their emotions with the help of tools and principles drawn from cognitive behavior therapy and Zen Buddhism. Last month, the journal Behavior Research and Therapy published a study of uh, about 1,000 Australian teenagers who were observed from 2017 to 2018. One group participated in Wise Teens. Another group participated in standard health class curriculum. And uh, just to summarize, it turns out that the students who were in this kind of um, therapeutic environment uh, fared worse. And then there are other examples that they bring forth of students who are in these kind of therapeutic uh, uh, programs meant to help them cope with anxiety and depression, but it actually makes them worse. And uh, why is that happening? Well, there's a few theories that are put forward. It says, first, by focusing teenagers' attention on mental health issues, these interventions may have unwittingly exacerbated their problems. Lucy Folks, an Oxford psychologist, calls this phenomenon prevalence inflation. When greater awareness of mental illness leads people to talk of normal life struggles in terms of symptoms and diagnoses, these sorts of labels begin to dictate how people view themselves in ways that can become self-fulfilling. 
Teenagers who are still developing their identities are especially prone to take psychological labels to heart. Instead of saying, uh, I am nervous about X, a teenager might say, I can't do X because I have anxiety. A reframing that research shows undermines resilience by encouraging people to view everyday challenges as insurmountable. Anyway, okay, so you can read the entire thing. This is um, what we're starting to see is that more and more people are beginning, only beginning, just barely starting to understand the problems with living in a therapeutic culture, a culture where everyone is encouraged to constantly think about themselves and their own emotional states and be going to therapy and be taking medicine and everything all the time. A society where the human condition has been categorized and medicalized and diagnosed, um, I think people are starting to see the issues with it. Now, I've been talking about this problem for years. Mostly I've been ignored. I'm still mostly ignored about it. But I think in the coming years, people will increasingly wake up to this. And they will see that we have just entirely handed our culture, our country, ourselves, our humanity over to the psychiatric industry. Which means that over time, people will see that the issues stretch far beyond what the New York Times has been talking about. Um, what we've done, you know, focusing just on young people for a moment, what we've done is we, we, we have programmed them to look inwards, always. So like they don't see the outside world. They're constantly staring back at themselves, thinking about themselves, thinking about how they're feeling, thinking about how they feel, about how they feel, and how they feel, about how they feel, about how they feel. It creates this like infinite regress of self-obsession. And they can't get out of their own heads. And when I say can't get out of their, head, their own heads, not in the sense that we used to use phrases like that. You know, we, in the past, if you had said that, oh, that person can't get out of their own head, uh, you might have meant it in the sense that like their head's in the clouds. And this is someone who's, say, very philosophically minded, a uh, very intellectual person, someone uh, that can't get out of his own head because he's constantly contemplating the mysteries of the universe or he's thinking about the nature of consciousness and where it comes from and uh, that sort of thing. Um, there, there's that sense in which a person can't get out of their own heads. And the thing is, you know, say what you want about that kind of mentality. It's obviously much better for the individual and for humanity than this sense of not being able to get out of your own head, which is that we've got all these young people and older people who are trapped in their own heads, because the, not because they're thinking about something beyond themselves and they're contemplating mysteries of the universe, and not because they're, they're, they're too intellectual and not practical enough, but because they're, complete, they're just bundles of emotion. And they're, they're always thinking about it. All of their intention is, is turned back within themselves. Um, and this is what the therapeutic, or what I would call our therapeutic culture encourages. It's how people are, uh, are conditioned. And we just can't function this way. And then part of that is, and you see this especially in young people, it's part of what this article is, is, is grasping at, is that you've got young people that, that don't understand that suffering and discomfort, anxiety, uh, sadness, these are all normal. This is all part of being human. And you will never escape them. Um, you just won't. And, and you might say, well, 
that's not fair. I, uh, so you're telling me that, that, that I will always have suffering and that there will always be pain and sadness in my life no matter what I do? Yeah, Th- that is just, that's human existence. That's what human existence entails. Um, anxiety, especially, it's why I'm always talking about the fact that we've turned anxiety into a disease is so insane. I, I, and I know that most people still are not far enough along here to, this is, this is, I'm going too far for most people when I, even if people that track me up till now, when I say that, when I suggest that, that anxiety is not at all a mental illness, that's what, well, no, 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 that's not true. I, I, I have anxiety. It's different for me. You don't understand. I need medicine. My anxiety is different from yours. It's so much worse. How do you know that? How the hell do you know that? You're not in anybody else's mind. Do you understand you're not in anyone else's mind? That you're experiencing these emotions and you're simply assuming that it is so much worse for you than anybody else? Do you understand that that assumption is based in nothing at all? No, anxiety is part of life. Like everyone experiences anxiety at some level, like always. I mean, there's always at least a, a, a uh, baseline level of anxiety that undergirds all of human experience. Well, that doesn't sound very fun. Yeah, you're not, it's not. I, it's not. I'm not saying it's good. It just is, though. And we have now created generations of people who do not understand this. Like, they don't understand what it is to be human. That, that's what's at stake here. What's at stake is a, is a society of people who don't know what it, they don't know how to be people. They don't know what it means to be a person. Um, and uh, I'm glad that some people are starting to catch on very slowly to this issue, uh, but we need to speed it up. We need to speed the realization process up because pretty soon we are going to live in a country where literally everybody is on a psychiatric drug and has been numbed into basically unconsciousness. That, that is where we're headed if we don't, uh, if this process of, of realizing that I'm right uh, does not speed up qu- quite a bit. All right, let's get to the comment section. If you're a man, it's required that you grow a beard, hey, we're the sweet baby gang. Being a man is about making sacrifices. But the one thing you shouldn't sacrifice is the quality of your clothing. That's why we created the Matt Walsh Flannel. Whether you're chopping down a tree, fixing a car, or exposing the left's hidden agenda, you'll look and feel like a real man. Get yours today at dailywire.com shop. I've got a holiday gift idea for you that's uh, sure to make you a hero of the season. Now, we all know the holidays can be a bit hectic, the shopping, the cooking, the never-ending list of things to do. But fear not, because I've discovered a gift that's not just thoughtful, it's downright transformative. It is the gift of GenuCell skincare. From now until Christmas, GenuCell's most popular package has a special discount just for my listeners at GenuCell.com Walsh. Treat yourself and your loved ones to the absolute best skincare in the world. These, those uh, troubling forehead wrinkles, fine lines, skin redness, and yes, even a sagging jawline will disappear right before your eyes with GenuCell's most popular package collection. GenuCell promises immediate effects. You'll see results in less than 12 hours, guaranteed, or your money back. GenuCell made Christmas come early this year. They sent down a ton of their products for our crew to try. 
The crew was so excited to get their hands on the products and see for themselves how great they truly are. Everyone was extremely impressed with the quality and how different it felt in comparison to other skincare products. You deserve to look and feel your best this holiday season. Go to genusel.com Walsh to get this incredible holiday discount. Every order today is instantly upgraded to free express shipping. That's genusel.com Walsh today. First comment says, hi, Matt. You, would, uh, you said that asking whether legalizing weed would be good for society is the first question to ask when debating the topic. Legalizing weed in limited circumstances would be good for society under a certain set of circumstances. One, you can only get it medically, not recreationally, and only for a verifiable ailment. You can only consume it at home or in designated locations. Um, you can't walk around or drive while obviously under the influence. People who suffer chronic pain, uh, especially people who used to uh, treat that pain with opiates but no longer can due to new regulations, can get out of that chronic pain with the help of weed. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I agree with that, actually. I, um, I, I would put medicalized marijuana in a separate category. I 100% think that medicalized marijuana... Now, of course, uh, as this has happened with many other forms of medication, when you... Uh, you know, it, it becomes very easy for people to game the system and, and say, oh, I need it. I have a, a back pain, you know, because you can't... It's impossible to prove if someone has back pain or not. But... You're always going to have that. Um, you're going to have that with any kind of medicine. That's not an argument for having no medicine, obviously. And uh, so for, for, for medicinal purposes, as a painkiller, essentially, um, I think, uh, I think it's, it, it is fine. And if someone has like terminal illness and this is something that um, eases the pain, then and you're at a level where uh, either, you know, you're dealing with the kind of pain, the kind of chronic pain that either we're going to say to that person, you can't take anything and you have to suffer in unimaginable pain. And we don't want to say that. But if we're not going to say that, then we're, then we're at a level where it's like a Tylenol is not going to do it. And so whatever they're taking is something that's going to you know, have an effect on their minds. Potentially, it's something that's going to be a little bit more hardcore, shall we say. And once you're at that level of painkillers, I think that marijuana is better than a lot of the alternatives. Um, uh, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. But I, I think it's really easy to have that as sort of a carve-out when we're talking about marijuana. Uh, Devon says, a bit disingenuous with the January 6th footage. Here is, a t- here is a tourist innocently walking through the airport on the morning of September 11th, 2001. It's one of the hijackers who seized a plane that day. I guess he's innocent because he was, at, he was peaceful at some point that day. Okay. I'm going to assume that you're just trolling. I'd like to assume that you're just trolling, and that's not a serious argument. But I, unfortunately, these days, I can't assume that. Well, tell me, um, this hijacker who was walking around the airport uh, peacefully, as you say, like, what happened? Why was he in the airport? What were his intentions? What did he do sometime later in that day? Did he fly an airplane into a building? Did he participate in the murder of 3,000 people? Yes, he did. Um, what, and what about January 6th? Was that did did so? Yes, I, I know we showed the pe- the videos of people walking around casually, and you're right that if they were walking casually on their way to murdering three thousand people, then it would be very stupid for me to show the part where they're walking casually and then say that that proves the whole thing is peaceful. Because now I'm in now I'm CNN level stupid, where they show uh, you know BLM riots and they show the parts where people happen to be like walking on their way to burning the building down, and they say oh it's mostly peaceful, right? But I'm not doing that 
because the 3,000 murders never happened. In fact, uh, the uh, the uh, January 6th, um, uh, they didn't murder anybody. The only person who was killed um, as a direct result of violence on January 6th was Ashley Babbitt, who was killed by a police officer. Finally, evidence says going to Mars is literally the dumbest and most pointless human venture ever. Elon Musk makes fancy toys that do nothing for humanity. I've already, I think I've already addressed this. You're really trying to bait me into, I, I will give the whole speech again. I don't care how late the show is going. I'll go, I'll do another 10 minutes on it. I would, but I won't hear. All I'll say is, okay, so Elon Musk is, is not doing anything for humanity. Uh, like, unlike you, right? What, what are you doing exactly? If you want to know what, what doing nothing for humanity looks like, then you can look in the mirror. That's, that's, what, that's, that's what just like existing and doing nothing and contributing nothing looks like. Building rocket ships to go into outer space. I don't care why you're going out. I don't care where you're going in outer space. You have already done infinitely more for humanity than, than you have done. Evidence. The best deals of the year are happening right now. And yes, that includes 50% off new Daily Wire Plus annual memberships. But there's so much more to check out during this Black Friday sale. Go to dailywire.com slash Black Friday and check out all the best deals, including up to 70% off apparel, the famous Leftist Tears tumbler, books, and so much more at the Daily Wire shop. We even have some new items on sale that you can't miss. There really is no better gift. Start filling up your cart before these deals disappear. Shop all the Black Friday deals now. Visit dailywire.com slash Black Friday and don't miss out on the best deals of the year. The holidays are here. And while you're out shopping for your kids, family, and friends, don't forget to shop for your pets too. Give your dog the gift of a healthier and happier life with Rough Greens. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black, the founder of Rough Greens, is focused on improving the health of every dog in America. Before I started feeding my dog Rough Greens, I had no idea that dog food is dead food. It contains very little nutritional value. Think about it. Nutrition isn't brown, it's green. Let Rough Greens bring your dog's food back to life. Rough Greens is a supplement that contains all the necessary vitamins, minerals, probiotics, omega oils, digestive enzymes, and antioxidants that your dog needs. You don't have to go out and buy new dog food. Just sprinkle Rough Greens on their food every day. Dog owners everywhere are raving about Rough Greens. It supports healthy joints, improves bad breath, boosts energy levels, and so much more. We are what we eat, and that goes for dogs, too. Naturopathic Dr. Dennis Black is so confident Rough Greens will improve your dog's health. He's offering my listeners a free Jumpstart trial bag so your dog can try it. Get a free Jumpstart trial bag delivered straight to your door in just a few business days. Go to roughgreens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700. That's R-U-F-F-Greens.com slash Matt or call 844-ROUGH-700 today. Well, you know, Thanksgiving is a wonderful time. It's my favorite holiday. It's a time for celebration, gratitude, time to gather around the table with your family, enjoy a wonderful meal, reflect on all the things that you're thankful for. And that is unless you are a deranged leftist, in which case you will insist that Thanksgiving is not so simple. There are nuances, as you like to say. Thanksgiving is, is deeply problematic. And that's why every year around this time of year, you'll start seeing articles like this one, which was just published in The Nation. Headline, Should America Keep Celebrating Thanksgiving? Now, the article presents two competing perspectives. Both sides of the discussion are put forward, and you have to give The Nation credit, at least, for giving both sides of the debate. Uh, as, as dumb as you might think the debate is, at least they gave both sides. And, um, uh, you know, that's honestly more than I would expect from this publication. 
So here's the first argument presented by a guy named Sean Sherman. Quote, quote, the sanitized version of Thanksgiving neglects to mention the violence, land theft, and subsequent decimation of indigenous populations. Needless to say, this causes tremendous distress to those of us who are still reeling from the trauma of these events to our communities. Thanksgiving's roots are intertwined with colonial aggression. One of the first documented Thanksgivings came in 1637 after the colonists celebrated their massacre of an entire Pequot village. I do not, uh, I do not think we need to end Thanksgiving but we do need to decolonize it. That means centering the indigenous perspective and challenging the colonial narratives around the holiday and every other day on the calendar. By reclaiming authentic histories and practices, decolonization seeks to honor indigenous values, identities, and knowledge. This approach is one of constructive evolution. In decolonizing Thanksgiving, we acknowledge this painful past while reimagining our lives in a more truthful manner. Now, by the way, in case this wasn't clear, um, that was the pro-Thanksgiving side of the debate. So they have two sides of the debate. That's what the pro sound uh, side sounds like. The Thanksgiving defender is a guy who thinks that the European, European settlers were evil, genocidal colonizers. So if that's what he thinks, here's what the opponent of the holiday has to say. You want to give thanks? Give thanks to native nations who granted settlers some form of legitimacy by entering into treaties recognizing them to be in our homelands. Those treaties recognize that Americans are now under our spiritual custody and have rights to pass through our country. As soon as Americans were able to impose their will on indigenous nations, the treaties were violated. Some indigenous nations do not have treaties, and legally this means their nations should be intact. Those of us who have treaties have defensible legal claims to lands that are now occupied by private American settlers under U.S. law. November is already Native American Heritage Month, Thanksgiving could be something better, a day to appreciate the truth of a Native American history and Native Americans' contributions to our lives. Let's tell a different story by dropping the lie of Thanksgiving and begin a truth-giving. Yes, let's tell the truth of Thanksgiving, he says. Let's tell the story that no one's ever heard before. And that's why every year around this time, there are dozens of articles and videos talking about the alleged truth that nobody is allegedly talking about. You find this narrative everywhere now. Even the website delish.com, which is usually a website where you post recipes and cooking tips, well, they have an article titled, The Dark Truth Behind the Origins of Thanksgiving. The real story isn't what you learned in school. A few years ago, Teen Vogue celebrated the day by gathering around a group of sullen, surly Native American girls to scowl at us and tell us, quote, the real history behind Thanksgiving. Watch. Happy Thanksgiving, America. I'm Donna, and I'm here with my friends to tell you the real history behind this holiday. Growing up, I knew that what they told you in school about Thanksgiving wasn't true. That's not the true story. The true story behind Thanksgiving was after every killing of a whole village, these European settlers celebrated it, and they called it Thanksgiving. But it wasn't until Abraham Lincoln became president that it became an official holiday. He ordered 38 Dakota men to be hung for war crimes after the sacred holiday Christmas. We take this time to remember our elders who lost their lives due to what really happened. Usually my mom makes a Native American dish for us and we pray. Growing up I would be kind of annoyed that they didn't know what actually happened on Thanksgiving and that they're actually celebrating the deaths of many people. 
Jeez. Cheer up, ladies. Cheer up a little bit. Uh, this is what you're celebrating, though. You think you're celebrating family, togetherness, and all that happy stuff, but that's not what you're celebrating. These unhappy Native American girls, they will tell you what you're celebrating, and they say that you are celebrating murder and death. Which, I, I mean, you know, how many, uh, I guess they're right. Like, how many, how many times, countless times, that we've all been sitting around the Thanksgiving uh, table, and someone says, uh, you know, let's go around the table and talk about what we're thankful for. And then, uh, you know, everybody says, well, I'm thankful for murder and death. I'm thankful for genocide. That's what I'm thankful for today. Happens all the time, right? And that's why Thanksgiving has been declared uh, by some a national day of mourning. Here's the ABC affiliate in Boston explaining this day of mourning. Watch. Raising their voices to be heard after feeling silenced for centuries. Why do we gather today? 400 years later, we join to raise our voices high that we are still here. We are not conquered and we are not defeated. As many were enjoying the Thanksgiving parade, indigenous people of Massachusetts protested the holiday that for them is not one to celebrate. Plymouth is rich with history, but not the truth of the Indians. Our presence here is a stark reminder of the true story of Thanksgiving that differs from so much from the fable story shared in classrooms history books and celebrations across this nation. Since 1970, the Wampanoag tribe has declared Thanksgiving a national day of mourning for the loss of indigenous people, culture, and land. I don't know if you saw there, I think that was, uh, the, the woman's name was Chief Ladybug, and she was dressed as a ladybug. This is apparently what the day of mourning consists of. First of all, I don't think it's appropriate to wear, to dress up as a ladybug for the day of mourning festivities. It just feels, that feels the, the, the tonal, the tonal shift there doesn't feel right. Um, but you can, you know, you could do this. You, you can choose to sit at the table and eat delicious food and have a great time with your family. Or you can take part in the day of mourning, which means listening to various Native American people lecture you about alleged atrocities committed hundreds of years ago. Do you want turkey or do you want an ill-tempered lecture? It's a tough choice. Here's what the lecture sounded like at a different day of mourning event last year. Listen. The Pequot people were burned alive in the middle of their sleep at night in 1637. Mass Bay Colony, Plymouth Colony, Providence Plantation, Mystic Seaport, all English colonies banded together to burn women and children while they slept in a village at night. They barricaded the exit. They did not allow anyone to leave. They wanted them to burn. They were proud that they burned. This country was proud to write. We could smell their burning, rotting flesh for over a mile away. It's written, folks. Please read it on your own. I am not making this up. Stephen King can't make this up. He was so proud. The town of Norwich, Connecticut, had a, a statue honoring this man up until roughly a decade ago. John Mason, the man who murdered over 700 people. When anyone, the few people who were able to survive that Holocaust, they were rounded up. They were sold as slaves. I like how he's trying to convince the crowd, you know, that, listen, folks, the white man, they're, they're evil. I'm telling you. I'm telling you they're evil. It's like they, these are people that came to a national day of mourning on Thanksgiving. So I'm pretty sure they're already on your side. I don't think you need to convince them. They're, they're already, they wouldn't be there if they didn't already agree. 
Now, he says that uh, this country was proud to write that we could smell their burning, rotting flesh from over a mile away. This country wrote that. This entire country, which didn't even exist as a country at that time, apparently wrote that phrase and committed that alleged atrocity. That's why we need to have a national day of mourning instead of a day of thanksgiving. Now, let me, let me make two points about all this. First of all, it's true that the traditional story of Thanksgiving that they used to tell young children in school decades ago is simplistic. And there's probably a certain element of legend to it. Every country has its legends. Every country has its foundational myths. Uh, there, is, there is nothing sinister about that. Stories are passed down through the generations. Details are lost over time. Sometimes details are added, um, all to preserve the central theme or message in the story. Every culture has its legends. And, and really, our understanding of all historical events from centuries ago is, at the very least, incomplete. We don't have camera footage to review. So we can uh, only go by what people involved said happened or what people who talked to people involved said happened. So none of this is revelatory. We all understand this. Okay, so every time they, they, they say, well, did you know, you know what they told you in second grade about Thanksgiving? Did you know that wasn't the whole story? Of course it's not the whole story, you idiot. It was in second grade. I, I assume it wasn't the whole story. None of that changes the basic meaning of Thanksgiving or undermines or debunks the basic central story of Thanksgiving. Besides, the old simplistic story of the holiday has now been replaced with a new simplistic story. In the new simplistic version, the native tribes were all a bunch of peaceful, tree-hugging hippies in tune with the earth and nature, singing Kumbaya when they were viciously slaughtered by the white man. The actual truth is that the native tribes were in a constant state of war long before any white man set foot on these shores. Violence was an integral part of so-called indigenous culture, all indigenous cultures, because it was not just one culture. Okay, these were, these were disparate tribes stretched out all over the hemisphere, and violence was an integral part of all of them, no exceptions. As for their contact with European settlers, sometimes the contact was peaceful on both sides. On some occasions, the settlers committed atrocities. On some occasions, the Indians committed atrocities. On some occasions, the atrocities on either side were basically unprovoked. On plenty of occasions, there was mutual combat between the two sides. Um, the Pequot people mentioned in that last video were not helpless victims. They were at war with the colonists. They lost the war. They were conquered. Such is the way of history. Such is the law of conquest, which the Pequot, like all Indians, well understood. They had done plenty of conquering themselves. In fact, and this was a very common occurrence, the colonists had Indian allies in their fight against the Pequot. And the tribes allied with the colonists were the ones that the Pequot had previously conquered and slaughtered. And so they were a little bit miffed at the Pequot. Of course, the Native American dude up on stage for the day of mourning festivities, um, or any of the, the rest of them, they don't mention any of this. They never do. They never acknowledge even one of the many, many, many countless instances of Indian tribes inflicting horrific, savage violence on innocent colonists, including women and children, and on each other. They never acknowledge it because they don't want you to realize that this land was not stolen. It was conquered fair and square. 
The previous conquerors of this land were then themselves conquered. That's the way it goes. Second, you know, even if it's true that most of the settlers were peaceful and that oftentimes um, they were the victims of brutal violence by the Indians and that there was mutual combat between the two sides and the Indians simply lost the battle, they lost the war. See, it was a war and they lost. Sorry, but you lost. Even if all that's true, does it justify whatever actual atrocities the settlers committed? No, of course it doesn't. Do I deny that such atrocities were committed? No, of course I don't. But here's what I do say about those cases. And I'll put it as gently as possible. Get the hell over it. Move on. Just, just, yeah, move on. Are you saying we should just get over and move on atrocities that were committed hundreds of years ago? Yeah. Basically, just like get over it. Um, the guy in the last video was complaining about something that supposedly happened in 1637. That's nearly 400 years ago. You cannot actually be angry about something that happened 400 years ago. If you are, then you are insane. You are an insane person if you're actually mad about stuff that happened four centuries ago. That is 16 generations we are as close to the pilgrims today as the pilgrims were to the crusades. That's the amount of time we're dealing with. And yet we have people in this country so young that 9-11 is ancient history to them, pretending to be distraught and devastated by events that occurred 150 years before the Declaration of Independence was written. Do you realize how crazy that is? Pretending to be actively traumatized about stuff that happened centuries ago is psychotic. Like, imagine if you found me in the corner sobbing and you asked me what was wrong and I said, well, I'm just really upset about the burning of the Library of Alexandria in 48 BC. I just haven't gotten over it. By the way, I've got news for you. 400 years ago, almost everybody's life was brutal and tragic. If we're supposed to be sad about misfortunes suffered by people we never met way back in the distant past, then we will never stop being sad. Almost everyone everywhere suffered greatly back in those days. There are plenty of people still suffering greatly today. If you want to empathize with people's pain, maybe choose people who are currently living, not people who had decomposed in the ground 400 years ago. Not people who died 300 years before the automobile was invented. Now, in final analysis... History contains an essentially infinite amount of suffering and atrocities and outrages and injustices. It also contains heroism and sacrifice and courage and achievement. It is up to us to decide which of those things in our national history we will focus on. I contend that the healthiest category to focus on, the thing that you focus on if you want to be a thriving and happy and healthy society, is the latter. Which isn't to say that we outright deny and never discuss the former. Of course, we acknowledge that bad things were done in our history. We shouldn't try to erase that from the history books, and nobody is. But ultimately, you will look back on your history with pride and gratitude or with resentment and despair. You will focus on the triumph or the tragedy. The people of all other nations across the world, or at least the non-Western world, they choose to focus on the triumph of their ancestors, which breeds national pride and patriotism and gratitude. In the modern West, we are the only ones 
who have decided to basically ignore all of the positive and concentrate almost exclusively on the bad. So much so that even our day of Thanksgiving has become, at least in some corners, times of mourning. And what has that strategy gotten us? It's only made us resentful, sullen, depressed, ungrateful. It has made us worse people and our country a worse country. That's why I will not partake in this historical self-flagellation. Instead, I celebrate the incredible valor and intrepidness of my ancestors. I take pride in this country's history and in those who made it possible for this country to exist in the first place. I am happy that they came here and that they conquered. I am thankful for their conquest. I will give thanks for it on Thanksgiving and for so much else. And for everybody else, I will say they are today canceled. That'll do it for the show today and uh, for the rest of this week. I'll uh, take a Thanksgiving break. I'll talk to you next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. Godspeed.